Catskill. Welcome to the local edition, news and information keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dolt. Coming up in the second half of the program, we learn more about the Balkan Mountains Music Festival. It's coming up, happening in the Catskills. Then find out more about what's happening in the Catskills and the Hudson Valley. We turn now to the Times Union Hudson Valley Bureau, and headed off by Philip Pantuso, as we do every Thursday at this time for our weekly news roundup with the Times Union. Philip, thank you for joining us again. Always good to be with you. Now, I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, the disaster relief. I know there's some news from Senator Gillibrand, but before we go into that, I heard just as we uh, went to record this interview, you had some breaking news of a, of a pretty big accident. Yeah, this is um, kind of a tragic story that's unfolding on Thursday afternoon as, as we're pre-recording here. Um, a charter bus that was carrying about 50 students, we think, from a high school in Long Island, they were on their way to Bank Camp in Pennsylvania. It crashed on I-84 in the town of Wabayanda. Um, at least one person was killed in the crash. Um, multiple people suffered injuries, and they were being transported to Westchester Medical Center, according to a state police spokesman that I spoke with about 15 minutes ago. Um, there's still there's an ongoing investigation into the cause of the crash, and you know, there will be further information that comes out, I think, this afternoon and, and tomorrow as that investigation goes on. But, yeah, a real a real tragedy. Um, they shut down the whole, all the lanes on that side of the road um, this afternoon. All right. Well, thank you for uh, keeping us up to date and, and bringing us that, that latest breaking news. Um, one of the biggest stories of the summer in the Hudson Valley was uh, the flooding and the damage that the flooding caused. And the ongoing story from that is trying to find um, some help with all of that damage and getting some disaster relief. So do we have an update on where things stand from that? I know uh, uh, Senator Gillibrand is getting involved. Yes, a little bit of an update. Um, Senator Gillibrand yesterday held a news conference in which she announced that she's going to propose five amendments that would in some bring more uh, disaster relief support to victims. These are going to be amendments to what's called a minibus appropriations bill. It's a kind of small package of spending bills, smaller than an omnibus bill, um, that's expected to be voted on soon. So, you know, there's this kind of ongoing debate about spending right now in the federal government that is threatening to shut down the federal government if they can't agree on spending packages. And so one of the things that they're doing is breaking out little bills rather than try to pass this whole huge thing. Let's pass the little, the single bills or the quote unquote minibus, two, three, four packages of bills that we can, you know, mostly agree on, I think. And so Gillibrand this week was going to um, add these amendments um, that would basically they provide more funding to rebuild roads, bridges, and public transportation. They would streamline food assistance and they would help ensure communities are prepared to more quickly respond to future future natural disasters. Um, and I can kind of go through through these one by one if, if you want me to. Yeah, if we can hit up what those five are real quick, that'd be great. Yeah, so the first one would include about $26 billion in emergency funding for three core federal disaster programs, including FEMA's Disaster Relief Fund, 
Housing and Urban Development Community Development uh, Recovery Program and the Small Business Administration's Disaster Loan Program. Um, there's going to be two transportation-related amendments that would send money to the Federal Highway Administration to repair and restore roads and bridges that are damaged by natural disasters and to help public transit systems recover. And um, there's also going to be a proposal to uh, basically expand SNAP, food benefit assistance, under the disaster SNAP program. So basically, after a major disaster, the U.S. Department of Agriculture can allow states to provide temporary food benefits to households that don't normally qualify, like, you know, their, their income is too high. Um, and this, but the, that process basically is really cumbersome. And oftentimes what happens, Gillibrand was saying, is that um, families who don't normally qualify for SNAP but would qualify for this disaster version of SNAP by the time they actually get through the approvals process, they don't really need the food assistance anymore. So she's got an amendment to both put more funding into that and to really expedite that process. In sum, what she said is that all, all of this legislation would provide billions of dollars in federal funding to help home, homeowners rebuild, to get communities back on their feet, um, to get small business owners back on their feet. And she seemed to suggest that there isn't too much resistance uh, to these things. I think there's bipartisan support for them. So we're not exactly sure when this vote is going to happen on this little minibus package of bills, but uh, I think it should happen if not this week, then early next. You've got news that West Point is being sued uh, because of uh, admissions, and this involves race. So does this follow from that that major Supreme Court ruling uh, in, in, in quite the way that I'm thinking? Are these things connected? Yeah, they're definitely connected. So that that Supreme Court ruling did not cover the nation's military academies, including West Point. Um, and the group that filed this lawsuit in federal court in Manhattan yesterday, uh, on Tuesday uh, is the same group that brought the challenge against Harvard and University of North Carolina that eventually made its way to the Supreme Court uh, and became the the ruling that invalidated uh, affirmative action earlier this summer. So this is basically the exact same playbook, just now coming at uh, at military academies. Um, so same group, same argument, essentially. Um, the, the group is called Students for Fair Admissions. Uh, they're claiming that the U.S. military academy improperly, improperly uses benchmarks for how many Black, Hispanic, and Asian cadets there should be in each class. And they, they write in their complaint that instead of admitting future cadets based on objective metrics and leadership potential, West Point focuses on race. Now, of course, I should editorialize here slightly, which is to say that um, West Point, um, just as pretty much every other uh, institution of higher learning does, um, they, you know, race is a factor in how they make their admissions decisions, but it is not far from the only one. Um, they said as much in a statement. Um, that's the way that it works at public and private universities as well. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens with this. You know, it, it, it's, this is a lawsuit that's clearly a sort of activist litigation. Um, its intent is to make its way up to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court is the same 
nine justices as, as are on there now. It's hard to imagine they would rule differently in this case. Right. But uh, it's probably going to be years before we actually get to that point. Students for Fair Admissions that was successful in the Supreme Court is is now kind of doing a similar thing. The major difference here, though, and I'm wondering if you've heard any reporting or any um, uh, legal input on this, the, on this major difference being that uh, these these aren't uh, external institutions of higher learning that are separate from the government. This this is the government's schools. This is the U.S. Uh, military academy. Does that make a difference ultimately legally that we know of right now? I mean, that's kind of to be determined. Um, I mean, certainly the bare fact of that is, is true, of course. Um, yeah, whether or not that same um, argument would would apply, because yeah, they're they're not external. We'll see. You know, they're, they're, this was just filed on Tuesday. I don't even know if there's been a response yet from uh, the defendant in this case, West Point. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of arguments their lawyers advance. Um, but something we'll, you know, just kind of have to wait and see. Okay, and now moving on to Saugerties in a story that we've uh, talked about a few times now. Um, their their former police chief. If you could just give folks a reminder of what's happened so far in the story, and then give us the latest. Yeah. So um, earlier this summer, I, I believe it was in June, the State Attorney General's office released a report of its investigation into the Saugerties Police Department, specifically looking at invest or allegations of sexual harassment and assault against one officer there and the police department's handling of those allegations. Uh, the Attorney General's report concluded that those allegations were credible and it recommended that they fire the officer in question and reform their efforts. They couldn't actually like take that step themselves. The attorney general's office can only make those recommendations. Um, in the aftermath of that, um, the Socrates town board um, met and voted to suspend the police chief. His name is Joseph Sinagra. Um, basically because there was just a lot of public blowback uh, about the report. Um, the town board also, once they conduct its own investigation, they hired the Ulster County District Attorney's Office to do that. That investigation is ongoing. While the police chief, Sinagra, was suspended, he took retirement. Um, that was in late July, I believe. Gosh, all of this. There's a lot that's happened in this case. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> late July, it might have been in August. Um, he took retirement anyway, and you know I was able to confirm that he was eligible for retirement. But when the town board voted to accept the retirement at its next regular meeting, on the town board meeting agenda, they termed it as a resignation, and that kind of caused confusion because if he was resigning, then he would be kind of eligible for different benefits um, than if he were retiring, and so. There's been some kind of there's been some confusion about that, both among locals who are kind of watching this play out and among the press. So, you know, I mentioned that I confirmed he was eligible for retirement, but I didn't actually know what kind of paperwork he filed or what kind of notice he gave to the town board. And so uh, the Times Union was one of a couple of news organizations to file a freedom of information law request for that retirement notice retirement and or resignation notice. Um, that was denied 
initially because uh, they were concerned about privacy, they said. Um, and meanwhile, the town board advanced a motion to adopt a policy that would allow it to issue a blanket denial for any freedom of information requests. Just to remind listeners, that's that's where we were the last time that we talked about this, they, that it appeared that they were trying to just not have a foil apply in Socrates anymore. What happened with that ultimately? Yeah, so that was that was two weeks ago. I, I reported on that story, and then the, on the day of the meeting, that evening, they tabled the motion. They decided they're not going to vote on it just yet. Uh, they would like to further consult the attorney to make sure it's legal. Spoiler alert, it's not legal. Um, <laughs> and that's not, that's not just me saying it. That's the State Committee on Open Government, which advises local governments and the press on the state's record access laws. So in advance of the Times Union uh, filing an appeal of that denial, that initial FOIL denial, I reached out to the Committee on Open Government to try to get them to write an advisory opinion that would bolster my appeal, essentially saying why we thought the, the denial of my records request was unlawful. The Assistant Director of the Committee on Open Government Doing her due diligence, she reached out to the Socrates town clerk to ask for any information that might, you know, inform her opinion. Um, they went back and forth, the town clerk, the town attorney for Socrates, and the, uh, and the director from the Committee on Open Government, uh, basically trying to get on the same page about what was and was not legal here. Um, so... Uh, Eventually, where that left off is that the Saugerties town attorney said that if they released the notice with any privacy information redacted, would we consider that a fulfillment of the request? And I was like, sure, let's get it. So they released it on um, Monday, and the entire notice, the entire retirement notice is a four- sentence email that Chief Sinagris sent from his personal account to the town clerk and an administrative assistant. And there's there's no personal information in there. They didn't even redact his personal email address. Um, and one of the arguments they had tried to make is that if he had given a reason for retirement, that that would have been, uh, to, to publicize that could have been an invasion of privacy. Well, the email doesn't even contain a reason that he retired. It just says he's going to take his retirement. He's going to exercise the rights he has in the collective bargaining agreement that governs essentially the contract between uh, the chief and the town um, and that he would be in, in further contact about the timing of those payouts. The payouts referred to essentially unpaid um, or, or sick leave and, and other uh, personal time off that he hadn't taken. So I was able to find the contract. Um, he will get, um, he'll get paid out for unused sick time. He'll have full health and hospitalization insurance for himself, his spouse, and all eligible dependents for up to 20 years at no cost. So kind of a little bit of a meta story here, but I, I thought it was worth, we thought it was worth doing a story on and I thought it was worth talking about here sort of to kind of peel back the curtain about um, 
sometimes the links that uh, news organizations have to go to, <coughs> sorry, um, in order to get um, information that should be public, right? Um, and hopefully this will serve as a little bit of a <coughs> uh, lesson maybe to other town governments that uh, like to abuse the FOIL denial process. Wow. Yeah. I mean, because that seems to be the story here is that, that uh, the, the story that you told us of that process, but also that clearly there's people that didn't want to give this information, but it seems like there wasn't, I don't understand what the there is. Like what, what was, what was the, the hang up about not wanting to clarify this? Do you think on the, on the part of the, the folks in the town that didn't really want to clarify this issue? I honestly have no idea. Um, they, when they initially denied the appeal, they, they cited privacy and then in some of the back and forth, um, they said they didn't want to set a precedent, right? Um, and I think I talked about that last week. That was some of the language that was in the motion that they were going to vote on about whether to have a blanket a policy to issue blanket denials for this type of FOIL request. But once I actually got the notice, I was like flabbergasted at how innocuous it was um so yeah i i i honestly don't know i mean yeah i i don't even i don't even want to speculate because um i just fear i'd be off base okay all right well i i, I appreciate <laughs> that and i just like you clarifying for me that that my take on this is essentially correct that it, it doesn't fully makes sense but uh it, it is good to have now everything out in the open including the process that you use to get things out in the open and the resistance that you got to getting things in the open thank you so much for taking the time to go over all this news with us always good to talk to you and that was philip pantuso philip heads off the hudson valley bureau of the times union times unions online at timesunion.com we're going to take a quick break and we come back the Balkan Mountains Music Festival. We'll have more on that. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Radio Catskill and Catskill Brewery present Apple Pie Palooza, Saturday, October 7th at Catskill Brewery in Livingston Manor. Eat pie, win pie, bring home pie. Enter the Apple Pie Baking Contest at WJFFRadio.org. Apple Pie Palooza, 5 to 8, October 7th, at Catskill Brewery in Livingston Manor. Benefiting Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition. I'm Jason Dolp. The Balkan Mountains Music Festival is happening in Shandaken on Saturday taking place at a small municipal park there in the Catskills and Shandaken. It's the third annual Balkan Mountains Music Festival, and it's a collaboration of the Phoenicia Library, financial supporter Ulster Savings Bank, and a local music promoter who has a love for the Balkans. Brett Barry, host of CatsCast, the Catskills podcast, has the story. In late September, the basketball court at Shandaken's Glenbrook Park becomes a community dance floor where area residents and visitors are transported through music to Eastern Europe. This year marks the third anniversary of the Balkan Mountains Music Festival, but the concert series started years earlier after a fire destroyed the Phoenicia Library in 2011. Library trustee Beth Waterman explains. 
Well, the Phoenicia Library burned in March of 2011. It moved to a temporary location while we raised money and rebuilt the library. And when we reopened, we did a survey of the community to see what they would like us to present. It's called our plan of service. Music was one of the things they wanted to see. So in an effort to do some music that didn't duplicate other music in the area, we started doing some very unusual music from exotic countries. We started with Georgian polyphonic singing. Samantha Awan Gortel was at that concert. She's the Phoenicia branch manager for Ulster Savings Bank, which sponsors this now annual event. First of all, I love watching live music because I think it's just so cool to watch people play an instrument, especially if you can't. The other cool thing about the, the first series that I went to, the Cabin Fever series, was that the instruments are very similar to what we use, but there was also a lot that were like, you'd never seen them, names of them I can't even think of right now. But again, it's just a very different experience than going to listen to a you know, four-piece band, drums, bass, guitar, singer, you know, so it's a little, it's totally different um, experience, but it's really cool culturally to, to see those differences. We just also really enjoy sponsoring things that are of a cultural experience, artistic experience, um, so this kind of encompasses both. You know, as a mutual savings bank, we don't have any stockholders. Our investment is into our customers and our community. You know, we like to support these kind of events as the Bulk and Fest, uh, Cabin Fever series, and other cultural experiences, artistic experiences, or educational experiences in the area. Uh, what's the Cabin Fever series? Is this part of that? Is this that? Did it start in the winter? How did that come about? The Cabin Fever series was the series of concerts we had before the pandemic that were held in the Phoenicia Library in the winter. And, you know, once COVID came, we realized we couldn't have any more concerts in the Phoenicia Library. It was, and also, the number of people we could seat in the Phoenicia Library was quite limited. So we moved to this outdoor venue. And we decided a Balkan mountain music festival would be great, where we could have lots of brass and, and a big space for dancing. We started uh, three years ago, and it's been growing every year. One amusing anecdote from the first year, when, they, when all the musicians arrived, they stood around and they looked at the pavilion and they looked at the mountains and they said, this is just like the Balkans. <laughs> well, according to your material, Balkan is Turkish for chain of wooded mountains, so it makes sense. Exactly, yeah. We have dance instruction at 3.30 and then this year we're having four bands and it extends until about seven. When one of the unusual things about this event is that everybody holds hands and dances in a circle. And there's something about a whole lot of people who are enjoying the same experience that really just creates a sense of community that's, I think, very striking. And they're all experiencing something new and unusual together, so that probably helps as a kind of like a, a bonding experience, right? Exactly. It's, it's the union of music and magic. <laughs> Has it been difficult finding people who play this type of music to come to the festival each year? 
We're really fortunate to have a person named Matthew Fass, who is a music promoter, and he had a festival in uh, Kingston, basically Eastern European music, that was wonderful. So he has the connections, and we hire Max to put it together for us. We met Matthew, a.k.a. Max Fass, at last year's Balkan Music Fest and asked him, why Balkan music? Uh, for me, I have loved the music now for about 25 or 30 years. I used to listen, I lived in California, I listened to used to, uh, the UC Berkeley station, and I heard the mysterious voices of Bulgaria was my first uh, first encounter, really, with that. And then I started to hear more of the, the style. And then in the 90s, we used to uh, rent videos from our local video store, and one of the movies we rented was called In the Time of the Gypsies by Imer Kustoritsa. And at that point, I... Um, I fell in love with the uh, style of the music and the and uh, the the feeling of the music. So um, I decided at that point to play accordion, <laughs> take up the accordion and play this Eastern European music. Uh, we're in the foothills of the Catskill here in Glenbrook Park, right outside of Sandaken, Phoenicia. The definition that I looked up said, or you know, that I've always known was chain of wooded mountains, or you know, the wood the mountains basically. So when you have a Balkan Mountains music festival, it's a little redundant. But um, yeah, there's something about this little nook right here, uh, just outside of, uh, right off of 28, that I've been to Eastern Europe at least 15 times, and there's a there's a flavor here that it's very similar to what I've experienced in Eastern Europe. And Bulgarian musician Nikolai Kolev agreed. My name is uh, Nikolai Kolev. Uh, the name of my band is Cherven Tractor, which means red tractor in English. I'm originally from Bulgaria, central Bulgaria, which is uh, known as a Rose Valley. I'm just from that place. Uh, right now, I mean, uh, the last uh, 28 years we live in uh, New York City, uh, in New York City, but recently we moved to Wisconsin, actually, in the uh, southern part of Wisconsin, the border with Illinois, some. We still uh, do projects with uh, New York in New York area with uh, local uh, musicians. Uh, where I am from, uh, Middle Forest in Sredna Gora, which we call Balkan, Balkana. It's very similar, the landscape. Trees, mountain. The instrument I play, Gadulka, it's a typical for my region. In my village, uh, named Karavelovo, um, Many people play Gadulka, and the time I was like uh, 10 years old, maybe over 50 people play this instrument. So I learned from them first. Yeah. Uh, in Rose Valley, we are uh, doing this festival like this, similar. Uh, and people from the United States come here to learn from the local. Uh, people, you know, dance, how they dance, to be part of it. This year's Balkan Mountains Music Festival returns to Glenbrook Park in Shandaken, New York, Saturday, September 23rd, from 3.30 to 7. You can kick up your heels to the music of Eva Selena, Mac and Cheese Balkan Power Trio, Bourbon and Breast Milk, and Pontic Firebird. The Balkans, by the way, are named for the Balkan Mountains that stretch across Bulgaria. But the region doesn't stop there. Other countries on the peninsula include Greece, Kosovo, Montenegro, Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, and Serbia, among others.
Back in Phoenicia, I asked Beth Waterman if she thought this Balkan Catskills tradition will continue. Well, I hope so. I, th- I think you know, there is a community of people who enjoy Balkan music and come all the way to Phoenicia who aren't local to the area. I'm hoping that more people from the Catskills will come to join us this year. Yeah, I went last year and it was a lot of fun. Very cool music. And uh, I remember someone from the country of Georgia, maybe, who had made uh, some kind of cheese bread, which was outstanding. So that was an added bonus. And I think you were serving it, Beth. Yes, we had we had a woman living here from Georgia, in the Republic of Georgia, who made kachapuri, which is a national dish in the Republic of Georgia. She has since moved away, but I'm very much hoping that she will be able to come back for this and bring with her some cheese bread. <laughs> we, we try to make it as, into a real kind of festive atmosphere. Including your own garb, uh, as I recall from last year. Yes, I just bought her new outfit. <laughs> <laughs> so if for no other reason to go to this festival. Just to see Beth's outfit. See my latest outfit Can't wait. From, the, from the thrift shop in Pine Hill. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I tried it on and I said, Balkan Fest! (laughs) (laughs) To see Beth's new Balkan-inspired outfit and to hear live Balkan music for yourself, head over to Shandaken's Glenbrook Park, September 23rd from 3.30 to 7. And if you'd like to start your day with another classic Catskills scene, don't miss the 19th annual Margaretville Cauliflower Festival. That's in Margaretville from 11 to 4. From CatsCast, the Catskills podcast, this is Brett Berry. Thank you, Brett Berry of the CatsCast podcast. You can find the CatsCast, Catskills podcast on our website, wjffradio.org. That's wjffradio.org. Under our community podcaster section, that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Thank you so much for listening. We got John Gordon Ramble Tamble coming up at seven, but first, more news.